Conrad? Yes, Steph. Conrad? Yes, Steph. It just hit me in a vision, right? That bodes well. As all the best things do. Ever since it did, I've always wanted you, Conrad, to be the sauce boy. The sauce boy. Yeah, this came to me in a in a vision about uh, thirty eight seconds ago, mm-hmm. um, and and ever since then you have always wanted. Ever that. since then, I've always wanted you to wear a chef's hat, right? Mm-hmm. And oh god, not a lot else, but an apron at least. Mm-hmm. Like chef's yeah, hat, and preserve a little imagination and modesty. Yeah, there's no. There's no shirt on, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you won't be able to see the menu, which is written on your back, right. uh, which is all the various <laughs> sauces. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to just make sure yeah. you you know that I am tiny and pale. I mean, I've like seen you, you do your Twitch stream shirtless. You, you might be confusing me with someone else that we know, is what I'm... I'm no, wondering. no, I've got to get this one out now. I was going to say, being very pale seems like it would be a positive for writing a menu on your back. That's you true. Know, improved legibility, you know? That's uh-huh. true. Contrast. And I can write very little. And the menu for the, for the sauce restaurant that, that is shaped like a big uh, hole in a tree trunk mm-hmm. uh, to be whimsical. We might actually, oh, I might give you little fox ears as well. Sure. Yeah, soup lads now. <laughs> But yeah, you 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 serve soup. Um, serve soup from the menu bimbles. on my back. Chef's hat, fox sauce ears. boy, sauce lad, sauce, sauce, lad. sauce lad. Now that I've added the fox ears, um, um, is is this is this the whole is this the whole th- bit? <laughs> I'm I'm done. I I yield yeah. the floor. They only had thirty eight seconds. Give him some credit. I yield the floor. Look, I'm not. I'm not criticizing. It wasn't a criticism. It was just a very genuine. Like, do do I leave you more space, or are we? uh, (laughs) Is is this is this is this the place where we go? Cool, we did that. We put that in the box. Now we're in pod position. Sarah, madam, I I acknowledge I've done wrong. (laughs) I I will apologize in due course. There are plans. (laughs) <laughs> to issue an apology in the next quarter. But until then, I yield the floor. I, I don't think an apology is necessary. We know what we get into here. Mm. And that is Source Lad territory. We are in Source Lad country. And now we're here in Podquisition. Yeah, welcome to Podquisition. We talk about video games sometimes. That's that's generally why we're here. You've got to at least admit that... Right, a restaurant in a, a a big tree trunk is a solid idea. It could be like that hippie pizza joint that is in some places in America. You mean like the Rainforest Cafe? No, 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 no. There was a, a load of mushroom motifs, mushrooms with faces, and the like. No, that's got to be a regional South thing. It might be. But I think the door entrance was like a big tree trunk, like like hole, like a hole in a knot or something. It's probably a better idea to have it in a big tree trunk restaurant than one that's sort of shaped like a fungus, because because th- those ones don't have mushroom inside. They're- oh, 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 wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So now that we've all committed crimes. Yeah, bet, bet you wish you talked about video games now, huh? <laughs> who's who's played stuff this week? Uh, well, I think there's one thing that we both played. Yeah? Laura, I saw that you mentioned that you had, had played Luck Be a Landlord. Oh, shit! I downloaded it. I forgot it. Then Laura reminded me of it. <laughs> then I forgot it again. And now I've just been reminded. For fuck's sake. Look, the ADHD is like that sometimes. Right? We will not hold it against you. God but, um, Conrad, I, here is here is my entire review of Luck Be a Landlord. Uh-huh. That game is fantastic, and I'm scared to play it too much. <laughs> it's it's good. How far did you get? Um, so like I I haven't played a huge amount, and that is by design. Sure. Because I was like, I'm going to play this the entirety of my morning, and I have work to do if I don't put it down now. I know I needed to pay, I think, like nearly five hundred for my rent, oh, which okay. was like, no, I, I was, I was, you know, starting to creep up. Okay. I was starting to have some better runs. I, I played enough of it to get into the state that I think makes that game work. So we talked about this last week. It's the sort of deck building slot machine pay your rent game. Right. And like the first few runs of this, I was very like, stop and methodically think about every single choice I make and like really think it through. And then... Once I'd, like, played a few runs and I kind of got the gist of, like, a few of the more common starting items, it became much more of a quick, don't think, follow the instinct, go, go, go kind of flow. Yeah. And that's very enjoyable, but it's very easy to just, just one more go it. Yeah, it's, there's enough interplay between the various symbols that are in the Mm. game that there are only a couple of ways that you could go that you might position yourself to where you have invested too far down a path that's not going to pay off but it's yeah. pretty rare um just a few of the symbols represent that kind of risk and when they pay yeah. off it it can be huge so it might even be worth it the other thing i'm learning a little and like i'm only just starting to put this together now and like not had a chance to really put it into practice is the realization that you can just skip mm-hmm. a selected set of of things offered to you and you should yes don't feel that you should take something every time you're offered if it's not conducive to the build just go i'm taking nothing yeah if it's if it's not contributing to to what you're you've currently built out after a point you're just hurting yourself you're just creating more trash in the pool that means you're not going to get the combos that you want and i think part of that is you know get it being used to something like vampire survivors where skips are a limited resource right whereas correct me if i'm wrong they're they're just unlimited here skips are unlimited you can get access to limited re-rolls and you can get items to destroy symbols from your pool Yes, and those are limited, but yeah, that's the thing that took me a minute to twig, and I really only got toward the end of the last run I was doing, was I probably should have been skipping some stuff earlier this run, and... Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's... Because here's the thing, it's it, everything you're offered ultimately ends up falling into, like, categories or pairings. Right. It's either, like, cool, I'm building up towards, like, 
um, fruits and vegetables because I have a bunch of people who proc bonuses off of that. Or I'm trying to get flowers and bees because they work together and get adjacency bonuses. Or I've got this arrow that like uh, will double the value of a thing and this thing that gets more valuable every time it's you know, it, something external increases its value, it'll permanently upgrade. And you're like, cool, I know those things, I can just kind of stop thinking and and follow the flow a bit. Yep. And, like, something new will come up and, you know, I'll keep it in mind for, for next time. But I do like that, like, the start of a run, up until, like, the sort of levels you, like, the, are the furthest you've been, you start recognising enough of the stuff that it's only really the new levels where you are having that sort of stop start of internalized new things. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much how it goes. If I'm remembering correctly, you would be have you would have been around on your seventh sixth or seventh payment. Um, yeah, something at, something like that. Yeah. So once you make your twelfth payment uh no no actually you probably would have been eighth or ninth. Anyway, once you make your twelfth payment that round is effectively over, right? Mm. And you can continue to play it in endless mode, and it will uh, give you increasing stakes, continue, and, you know, play it for a few more payments, usually. And then your landlord retreats to a higher floor in the building, and that will introduce modifiers to a run started on that floor. And that's interesting, uh, but one of the things I think is 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 really interesting about this game is that it provides you multiple routes to the conclusion in a way that I really like. There are ten floors in the building. If you progress all the way to the tenth floor and clear it, you can win the game. Okay. But the mechanic that triggers the end game state can be enabled by winning 10 games on any floor, which is nice Ooh. because if those modifiers yeah. are a pain in the ass for you and you just you're, you're, you you want to play through the game and you can still yeah. get that challenge without having to deal with all of the other unnecessary bullshit by clearing it 10 times just on the first floor with yeah. no modifiers. And that's not easy. Yeah. But it's doable. Mm. Yeah. That's that's really nice. Yeah. And there's another thing that it does should you make it to, uh, I think you have to clear the sixth or seventh stage. I think it's the seventh. If you make it to the seventh floor and clear that, we've been talking about symbols, but then there are also items, right? And the items are the things that you get after every payment. You get one item, and then occasionally you'll get a capsule that might give you access to another item. And these apply more global effects. Yeah, these these are like your overall modifiers that will always have their benefits and or negatives on every spin you do. Right. You don't have to rely on rolling them. Now, this, just as a side note, this is also really, really well implemented because you can turn them off. Okay. Sometimes you will get things that have an effect that will impede your ability to succeed with other elements. One example is going the egg route. I would call it. So one of the symbols is an egg. There's a percentage chance on a spin that the egg will hatch into a chick. There's a percentage chance that a chick will develop into a hen. And a hen has a percentage chance to drop a new egg. So hmm. this cycle can be really, really useful. 
for producing lots of eggs. Mm. And there is an item that will sweep all of your eggs out of your pool and then give you a point every spin for every egg that's been collected. Oh, this is the egg box. This is the egg box. Yeah, I I, I just saw this uh, earlier today. But the egg box runs counter to another item that's very useful called the frying pan. Hmm. The frying pan, anytime an egg is next to another egg, a golden egg, milk, or cheese, it turns it into an omelet, which is a rare mm. item that scores three every time. And anytime an omelet is next to one of those ingredients, it gets more point value. So mm. it's a really good cascading way to develop score. But if all of your eggs are being taken by the egg box, you can't leverage it. So it's one of those things where it allows you the flexibility to remove your strategies um, if they're coming into conflict or if it's just not quite the path you need anymore. So out of curiosity, because I haven't experimented with that, can you just turn them on and off as you wish? Yeah, in between any spin. Okay. Right click on them, it puts a little X, and that effect is no longer applied. Did not know that, and that's really interesting. The other thing that's interesting about them is that there are... There's a second layer of these items that becomes opened up when you clear the seventh floor. They're called essences. And Mm. they work a little bit differently. When you get an essence, and essences are collected at the end when you make a payment just like items, but you can accumulate essence through the course of play with capsules that are symbols or other means. These function similarly to the items that are their counterpart. Every essence is based on an already existing item in the game. But they are more conditions that they have. If it achieves this condition, this effect occurs instead, and then the item is destroyed. Mm. Sometimes these are global effects that are permanent. You know, certain Mm. types getting permanent multiplier bonuses to their value from having met a condition that you were likely to have met by following that grouping or category as your strategy. Hmm. So it really amplifies the amount of coins that you can get from spins by leveraging these in different ways. And this leads me to, last week I mentioned um, one of the items in the game uh, is the guillotine. The guillotine will kill billionaires that appear on the spin and award Mm. you a lot of gold for them. Yes. The essence of the guillotine, when you have a billion coins, you are killed. Yeah. And I can say I am a man of my principles. I Upon completing the game, you can enter into a different endless mode that doesn't have the goals, and you can mm. just build money. And I did. And, and it happened faster than I thought, actually. I was expecting it to be a few hours. <laughs> but because <laughs> of the nature of these multipliers that stack with the essences and the strategy that I went with, I went with cats. Yes, cats early on have been pretty promising. I grabbed every cat. I had 11 cats by the end of it. And I had an essence that would have triggered if I could have gotten 13. But the problem is, 
that there are so many items that will increase the likelihood that you get rare symbols in your selections that I couldn't mm. get anything common to get cats. Yeah. And so I was looking for tedium capsules and tedium curses that would like <laughs> mitigate the rarity I was collecting and turning off all of the items I could that would increase it just to try and get more cats. Um, but yeah, it's you, you can definitely get a billion and it will definitely kill you. And it's fun. I really, really enjoyed this game. It's addictive. Thankfully, I finished it. Unfortunately, I found something else, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I'm going to be chipping away at this, but it's, uh... This game is a crystal clear reminder why I can never allow myself to set foot in a casino. Mm -hmm. Like, this game perfectly scratches an itch into my brain and makes me go, I can never let real money get anywhere near anything like this because this game's too good and I recognise exactly which compulsion is is being rewarded here. Yep. Yep. Good game, though. Real good good game. game. Real good game. Yeah. What about you, Steph? What you been playing this week? I've played two games. I have also seen a film. And I've never really talked about films on any really any of the podcasts I've done before. No, we so. yeah, that's this is really yeah, new de- definitely for us. not video game movies. No, so I thought maybe I'd share a little bit of an opinion about yeah. the um, the second best Mario film. <laughs> yep, I finally got around to watching the one what came out last year with Chris yeah. Pratt and uh, the gang. I watched it with um, the kids, the little ones who were doing intense play-by-play commentary on a lot of it. Mm. Uh, but they did settle down. What, one of them one of them on a call the other day was reenacting how Mario does the jump, which really, really emphasises, like, oh, yeah, no, this film hit its target audience. Yeah. Um, and in that way, in that way, I will praise it. Perfectly inoffensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Marketable. Mm-hmm. Ticks yep. its boxes. Does nothing else. Mm-hmm. I sat there, I kind of drifted off by the end of it mentally. I checked out, even worse than usual. It was so by the numbers, I barely even remember what happened. It was the most direct sequence of adventure plot events. It sure is. 100%. It is the movie that you make when the last time you made a movie about your big mascot it was incredibly weird and divisive and scared you off of making movies and you want to come back and you want to come back and make a, ma- a movie about that mascot again but you're just going to play it so safe i understand it like i like i yeah. say i will praise it as a product as something that personally entertained me uh, I found the nihilistic star in the little cage funny. Everyone loves the little nihilistic star. Yeah, who doesn't love that star? I will say this much about it. I found a transcript of the film. Not not the screenplay, but a transcript of it. So keep in mind, this does involve some light description. Uh, it's 12,000 words. Yeah. <laughs> there are Tim Rogers reviews. <laughs> Mate, it's not fair to compare anything to... <laughs> Unless it's, like, one of those books that are described as, like, doorstops. You can't compare it to a Tim Rogers work. But it's 78 pages double-spaced. Like, it's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's nothing Well, here. a lot of the film is, um... 
I've heard you describe films before on something, and you often describe the action sequences as just fighting happens. Yeah. Because it's just such an indistinct sort of, like, part of the film. It's an action sequence to have an action sequence. There's a lot of that in the film. Well, and, and, and for this, it's, it's needle drop happens. Well, yeah. It's like every ten minutes, if that. The bit that really crossed it for me there was when Take On Me played, when the go-kart bit happened. And it was like, they didn't even think of a nostalgic song about a monkey or a jungle. You don't even know the thing about that one. There was an original song written for that sequence you can find online that at the last minute they changed their mind and removed and threw the licensed song in. There was an original song in that sequence and that's why the licensed track feels so out of place. It feels like there should be. Like It just feels so fucking slapped on. It's so gratuitous. Same with Mr. Blue Sky near the end. Like I love love Yellow. It's my favourite band. I liked Mr. Blue Sky in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and I think Guardians of the Galaxy, like, is allowed a bit of leeway with using the music, because a lot of these things are copying that. Um, But that, like, I rolled my eyes at that. And yeah, just a lot of those fight sequences, musical nay, I could barely follow, because it's just leaping about flashes and colours and, like, mess it's no rap about getting you know um deprogrammed from fascism that you know you might ascribe to the other mario brothers movie that exists the greatest and that makes it a coward's film yeah oh absolutely spineless and worm-like like none of this is to say it's a terrible film perfectly serviceable great at what it's supposed to do it nailed it kids loved it Lots of people liked it a lot. It looks like it's set up now that we're going to get all sorts of fucking Nintendo shit. And and fine. I would like to see something a bit more daring come out of it. Like just a bit more creative than this. I wouldn't hold out a lot of hope. No, I I wouldn't either. But it's what I would like to see. Yeah. You know, maybe when the uh, series drags on too long and they start getting fucking weird and desperate with it, then it's a good time. Yeah, but look at Marvel. Like, that's the model now, and we see where that's headed. I mean, I get it. I'm trying to be optimistic for once, but you've... No, I I don't disagree with you. I'm at a point here where if there's a license involved with uh, an expectation of more, I'm so cautious. I'm so paranoid. Mm. And that's actually, I think, going to work in my favor when I get to see Barbie, when I finally get around to doing that. Because that one I will vouch for. Yeah, that's that's gonna. But at the same time, even then, there's a bit of a. Well, it's kickstarted a fucking Mattel universe yeah, and shit. It, like, there's is... gonna be a Boglins <sighs> film, and yeah, they clearly learned all the wrong lessons from that film's success, and I am terrified yeah. of what it's gonna spawn. Well, and, and and there's also the like, you know, okay, it's got this sort of anti-patriarchal you know, uh, progressive message. But, you know, it's it's tied up in a liberal product. It's still a commodity. No, it is. It's, you know, it's... they're not saying anything they aren't allowed to be saying and approved of by the corporation. So are you really fighting power? It's really fun, though. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure it's very funny. and I'm, I am looking forward to it, and I, I think I will enjoy it. But that stuff always has that element of it that I, I can't escape. I do understand. But I just, I was just so flabbergasted by the film. And so I did not expect it to do the things it was doing, even though, like, 
I was expecting um, the general tone. I did not just just the line about the ghost having a f- uh, an office at the end, <laughs> like fucking the amount of bullshit it hand waves. And yes, all of it was approved, but some of it really does have me like, how did this get passed in in such a sanitized age? Mm-hmm. It's a kind of film that I cling on to that the, something creative and weird can still be made at that level. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I played a couple of other things that I, I, I want to talk about with caveats up front of. It's, it's been a weird week for me in terms of like both of my big re- accessibility reviews I had going I had or have going up this week are ones that I had to do little caveats at the start for so I'll get this one out the way first um I played the last of us part two remastered a ten dollar upgrade remaster of a game that's like three and a half years old I think at this point. I'm going to give the same introduction here that I did in the accessibility uh, review that's up on YouTube at the moment. I would really recommend reading a piece on Vice titled The Not-So-Hidden Israeli Politics of The Last of Us Part 2. It is by an Israeli writer, and it talks about the fact that Neil Druckmann has been open in the past about the fact that, at least in part, The Last of Us Part 2 is a story about Israel and Palestine from the perspective of someone who grew up and has named a specific uh, terror attack that they witnessed that led them to believe, at least at a time, that feelings of retributive violence are a universal experience. And the piece goes into a lot of detail from an Israeli perspective of looking at The Last of Us Part Two and, you know, through the lens of being about Israel and Palestine, and the implications it seems to make. And the fact that while the game tries to have a message of being sort of very centrist and even-handed about violence begetting violence, there are inequalities in the ways both sides are presented in The Last of Us Part Two, And it is well worth reading that just as a context piece that feels very relevant right now. Um, that being said, and being explicit in, you know, that... I support a ceasefire, and I think that, you know, right right now Israel is using self-defense as an excuse to injure civilians completely without, you know, any, any, um, making any apologies for doing that, which is fucking terrible. That caveat aside, I did play The Last of Us Part Two Remastered, because I think there is value to talking about it from an accessibility perspective. One of my biggest complaints about The Last of Us Part Two, uh, when it originally released from an accessibility perspective, was the game's lack of audio descriptions. The game was technically playable start to finish by sightless blind players, but none of the narrative outside of spoken dialogue was uh, in any way communicated. Um, If it wasn't sound effects or spoken dialogue, that plot just wasn't communicated. The Last of Us Part 1 remake uh, last year, whenever that was, introduced audio descriptions to the series, and it did so in a way that kind of had limitations. Cutscenes completely hands-off, we've decided this is a cutscene, had audio descriptions, and those audio descriptions are really good. But anything that is not strictly a cutscene just does not get audio descriptions, and that led to 
some pretty big issues, like set-piece moments where the character- you, you don't have control of the character and the game knows where you are exactly during the set-piece, wouldn't get audio descriptions despite that being something you could design for because you know exactly where the player is. It meant that often you would enter a very visually distinct environment and not be told anything about the fact that like, oh, you're in a flooded subway car right now. And The Last of Us Part 2 Remastered follows the same playbook, and it's kind of disappointing because I kind of gave part one a little bit of a pass in that regard. It is the first time that the studio has, has attempted to implement that kind of stuff. And I recognise there are technical challenges to it, but that game is full of like little conversation trigger points that you walk across, where you, you walk through a known position that the game knows you're going to walk through, and it triggers a conversation. A similar system would very much be able to insert audio description audio, and they have not made the effort to do that yet. Which, again, I don't want to be too critical, I'm glad that this is here. It is adding in the big thing that I felt was missing from this game accessibility-wise when it first released, but I'm being critical because this support is bundled in as part of a paid update, and I'm not super happy about that. There has been a bit of a growing trend the last couple of years of accessibility settings being tied into paid new content updates for games. We saw it with Resident Evil Village, third-person mode, didn't put it in the free accessibility update, it put it in the, the new story DLC, despite there being, you know, Capcom trailers that acknowledged it's really helpful for motion sickness accessibility. I wish that at the very least audio descriptions had not been part of this paid update. I know it's only $10, on principle, I don't like that you are making people pay for the additional content to get the thing that was missing from the base game in terms of accessibility. I want to see better. I believe that that team can do better in terms of audio descriptions, and I think if any team is going to be the first one to get it right, the you know, Naughty Dog are the closest to getting there right now. But in order to see it get better, I'm going to keep saying it, it should be better than this. I did play around with it a bit. The main thing of note uh, is that there is a new roguelike survival mode in there, which is interesting given that God of War Ragnarok, we talked about, last week, got a free, very substantial, narrative-focused, eight-hour-long, uh, eight-hours-plus, you know, um, roguelike mode that was really good. This has its roguelike mode as part of a $10 update, and it's not nearly as interesting. Um, it's not nearly as fleshed out. I can't imagine the gameplay even being all that conducive to a a fun roguelike setting. It's not bad, and it's not poorly made. It just doesn't grab me. So, like, here, here's the gist. You've got, I think, like, 10, 12 random characters from The Last of Us 2, and you, you sort of have to unlock them over time, but each of them starts with a different starting loadout and a couple of different, like, little abilities to them. And it's basically, here is a little apartment room that is your space between between encounters. You can upgrade your character with like stat buffs, you can buy new weapons and you can like upgrade your weapons with parts you find, you go to a little cork board and it's like, here's a little branching tree, what kind of mission do you want? And they basically fall into the categories of, here is like three waves of enemies with like 10-15 seconds in between them to like, you know, grab resources and craft things before another wave comes. There is you and another character fight off a big enemy together. There is 
survive for X amount of time and enemies will just keep trying to come and find you and you can be stealthy or you can fight them but like they're just going to keep coming until the timer runs out and there is big boss encounter at the end those are basically your mission types that sort of miss you know mix and match content from the base game a couple of things that are neat for a mode like this particularly one that has the ability to like grab resources quickly in between waves I like that all of the accessibility support for the base game carries over to this, including the ability to swipe the touchpad and put on high contrast mode. It's really nice when you only have 15 seconds to grab resources between waves to just highlight everything pick-upable in yellow so that you can just grab, 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 okay, back. That I really appreciated. I like that they put some thought into how navigation assist for sightless players works in the zone where you're doing your upgrades between runs. There's like a unique command for navigating to specific parts of that setup. It's part of a, te- a paid upgrade and it feels less substantial than the one that was a free update that I talked about last week. If you're desperately here looking for excuses to play more of that game, that's there. If you require the accessibility support, I'm sorry that it's going to cost you $10, but it is there and it is certainly a step forward accessibility-wise than it was. But yeah, that's The Last of Us Part 2 Remastered. It- it's The Last of Us Part 2 again with a handful of little things sprinkled on. What about you, Conrad? So, I found a game this week that, uh, blessedly, like 20 minutes before we started recording, I finished, and I can close, and not think about again. Because it is such a fucking distraction to me, I can't stop playing it it's called the norp apologue oh i was being told about this you streamed this and chat was telling me a bit about it yeah i did stream this a couple of times it it's an idle game they're little guys little guys they're like little square guys tiny little square guys tiny little feet tiny little eyes and they're norps and the norps have found a rock And if you click on the rock, it damages the rock. And when the rock is damaged, it emits shards to its right in like a a little pile. And then you can build a little stash to collect the shards in. You can build buildings to hire, you know, Norps to collect them for you. And then get Norps that hit the rock for you with their heads. And that produces more shards that you can then use to buy more housing for more norps to hit the rock and collect shards, and on and on it goes. What's interesting about the norp apologue mechanically is between the rock and the stash, there is space. And as the shards come off of the rock they collect and pile up in uneven piles. Mm. Eventually, this pile, if you're not able to collect it fast enough, will reach the top of the screen, and this triggers what's called a compression event, where Mm. all of the stuff that had been knocked off of the rock up to that point gets reabsorbed back into the rock, and now Uh. all of the shards are twice as dense. Okay. 
you're still carrying technically the same value when your NORPs carry them off, but they are carrying a smaller quantity, which means it takes more damage to build up to the top of the screen again, and it takes more NORPs and more collecting capacity to drag them off. And so there's this interesting mm. balance that you have to achieve between damaging and collecting either to prevent a compression event from occurring or to get it to a level where a compression event can occur because sometimes your progress might be requiring things to be more dense. And eventually the goal mm. is to get through 10 compression events. But if you haven't built up the resources and the capacity to do the damage, you could be sitting there for fucking ever once you get seven or eight compression events in because you're just not able to do enough damage. The most damage-conducive mechanic in the game is most productively tied to the guys that collect your shards. Late in the game, you get an ability where there's a percentage chance that shards collected by these guys on the ground get sent off to a missile silo to be turned into missiles to do damage to the rock. And mm -hmm. you can tell the guys to stop collecting. That's all well and good. And they will. And in theory, things would build up without them collecting it. Now, there are other aspects that might counter that, but... Yeah, in theory, it would build up. But now it's going to build up at like one one hundredth of the rate because you're not doing the damage that you used to. You pulled all of the guys contributing the most damage out of the fight. Mm. It's really, really interesting mechanically to play with. There's some fun ideas. One of the unit types that you get access to is for collection and peak maintenance and they're mountaineers and what they do is they bounce along to find the highest point on the mound and then they just dig down and throw all of the stuff closer to the stash they don't get it to the stash unless they happen to be like right up on it but they'll throw it further over so that the collectors can grab it and it lowers the pile and keeps it in check lots of little mechanics all connecting in and interplaying with each other every unit type that you get access to winds up being a benefit to other unit types later in some way and it is a really satisfying thing to watch because there's a lot of visual animation um, very stark minimalist graphics that over time just become sort of this mess of color as it adapts with every compression event to introduce more visual elements in it's a very, very easy game to go check on and then feel compelled to watch. And I'm so glad that I finished it and now it won't be sitting open to tempt me anymore to look at it because I'm, I'm done. Although that did unlock a speedrun mode that um, <laughs> I'm going to try to resist. It's a very cool little idle game it's not as idle as other idle games and it actually has an end state which is neat to see in a game like this yeah i would check out the norp apolog it, it is pretty fun neat uh what about you steph you played anything else this week oh sure sure legend of grimrock came to the switch yeah. uh 10 years after it came out and I remembered that 
I have played that. So I played it again. Um, not sure if you're familiar with that one. It's one of those first-person tile-based dungeon crawl action RPGs. Mm-hmm. It was fairly big when it came out. Not like massive, massive, but it was very well regarded because it was such a throwback. But playing it now, I do wonder how well received it would have been if it were new. Just because of how rudimentary it is, it's very simple. The enemy AI, very straightforward. Um, Even at the time, a few reviews complained about how exploitable it was. Combat is just tapping each character's button in turn and, and stuff. I think it says a lot about what we expect from games these days, that I was surprised it wasn't a roguelike. Even though I've played the game and I know it isn't a roguelike, the fact that the level is the same all the time was a surprise to me because I've gotten so used to a game like that not being that way. Mm. I can't remember, actually, if I played Legend of Grimrock 2. I know that it wasn't linear, but I don't know how that manifested beyond that. But yeah, it was. It is strange, sort of, because I I forgot to save and I died because I was really reckless. And then when I started again, I was like, oh, it's this again with the tutorial and everything. And then the same dungeon layout and the same enemy placement, all of that. And I, I've just gotten so used to a game not being that. I don't know whether people would consider that these days refreshing or whether it would have that Jerry Seinfeld effect of. Uh, these days, we've seen that built upon so much uh, that that looks kind of rudimentary and old-fashioned. I don't know how people would take it now. I mean, I guess we'd see what people think of, of the Switch release and, and whether they'd think of it the way I do. Where My problem with it is it's it's very slow and kind of plodding, and the, the environmental puzzles, which is a big part of it, are the slowest, ploddingest bit. A lot of kind of pick-up rock drop rock on pressure platform find hidden switch on wall and and it's all just very kind of methodical and slow and not all that exciting so i don't know how long i'll keep at it um it's nice to be nostalgic with it so that's the thing does kind of just make me want to like play a good roguelike again though yeah, it's weird how much, you know, a new thing can change your expectations of genre. Yeah. 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 It's moving ever forward. That it is. Other stuff I played this week. This is the other one I'm going to give a caveat up front to. Mm. I played my first Ubisoft game in about four years. Ugh. Right? And I'm going to give the caveat up front. Like, hey, no surprise to any of you who listen to Podquisition, but generally speaking, I don't play Ubisoft games anymore because, you know, all of the abuse that went on and all of the not taking account for that that's been going on, all of that nonsense. The thing is, I cover accessibility in video games, and it is impossible for me to always ignore Ubisoft because they are admittedly... One of only, like, three major AAA studios that is, like, reliably doing good accessibility work. And occasionally they'll release something and I'll go, I kind of have to take a look at this because, you know, accessibility-wise they are doing stuff that I cannot ignore despite my, you know, personal stance on generally not supporting the, you know, a lot of their output. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Prince of Persia The Lost Crown. I'm not going to go into, like, huge depth, 
But from an accessibility perspective, it is a Metroidvania-style title. Uh, you're running around being being this warrior trying to save a prince from a cursed time weirdness world. But there is a bunch of really nice accessibility stuff in there that I am genuinely really excited about that I think is worth giving some airtime that I often don't give Ubisoft. First of all, it is Ubisoft's first game to have high contrast mode support. Really like seeing that. Um, it's one of very few games to be available on Switch that has high contrast mode support, a setting that is like really particularly very useful for small uh, handheld screens. Generally speaking, I have a real suspicion this year is going to be the year that high contrast modes really sort of balloon in availability across a bunch of studios. Very positive seeing the way this year has started on that front. There's a lot of like really good stuff there in terms of like difficulty selection, difficulty customization, being able to do things like increase your parry windows. You can select to have portals available that if there's a tricky platforming section you're stu stuck on, you can just go through a portal and it'll take you past that. That's great. But the reason I ultimately was like, I kind of have to play this and talk about it is I really struggle with Metroidvania games because I struggle with visual memory. It's a genre I want to love, but sometimes really struggle with. A really good example of one that I loved, but almost made me cry at points, was Carrion. The big tentacle meat blob escaping a scientific facility game, which I think it's a great game, but that game has zero map at all. And it requires you to memorize the entire layout of the entire game, and anytime you get a new ability, you have to completely from memory remember where you saw things that that can access and how to get back to them and like that is the peak of the kind of thing I struggle with as someone with aphantasia with a lack of visual memory and there are some you know some metro venues I think have done better than others in terms of accessibility support in that regard Metroid Dread was pretty good it had a good system for marking doors you found with the type of progression block they are so if you unlocked a tool to unlock doors you could at the very least methodically work back through all of the doors of that type that's now available. Going specifically to the, the Lost Crown, there is a setting right from the start available called Guided Mode, where the game will just automatically fill in the map for you as you go, marking currently available uh, doorways, doorways you currently cannot get through, so don't even worry about those right now. Even if you haven't uncovered enough of the map to know how to get there, it will always put the next big progression location on your map, so it's like roughly that direction is where you're ultimately trying to get to right now. But the big feature that has like really made a big fucking difference to me, and it's the, the reason I'm giving this game time, is they have a feature where you can at any time in the game press down on the d-pad to take a screenshot which is pinned to your map in the location where that screenshot was taken. Meaning that if you need to remember not just there is a thing here, and like, you know, so many Metroidvanias will give you like little pins to be like, oh, I, I got a little monster pin, I'll put that there. Oh wait, was that a monster that's really good to farm for materials, or is it one I don't know how to kill yet? Takes all of that ambiguity out, and it's just like, hey, why did I need to go back to this location? L literally look at a screenshot and go, oh yeah, no, that's the one I'm thinking of. It means that if there are multiple places, you're, you're like, I, I know it's one of these that I put on my map is the one that I'm currently trying to get back to, you don't have to do that guesswork of is like going to places that you've marked that might be the right one. It's just there, and I can just look at it, see a screenshot exactly where the thing is, and that function, it's so seemingly simple, but it has made a really, really big difference to my ability to enjoy being in a Metroidvania. 
and it is a feature that I really hope that we see more developers pick up on because it genuinely like I I I, t- I talk about this a little bit in the accessibility review uh, that they'll be up on YouTube. My previous solution to this was to try and use like the screenshot button a couple of times and to be like screenshot what I'm currently looking at, screenshot the map go to the screenshots folder later when I need to and I can look up the screenshot of the thing I'm trying to remember and see the map next to it. But if I've done this multiple times back to back, I'll often look at an image and be like, is the map before this or after this? Which which order did I take those screenshots? Um, which which map corresponds to which screenshot? And then remember it while I'm getting back into the game to go act upon it. And then having to jump back out the game to double check if I forget along the way. This one feature is really nice. And I am so glad to see that step forward for that genre. So yeah, as much as I generally don't, you know, cover Ubisoft games and, you know, like, I, I've made a point to not play Ubisoft games that I've wanted to play because, you know, that's the point of a, a you know, a boycott is the, you know, the fact that a thing is enjoyable is like, you know, lesser than the the principle, but... As someone that talks about accessibility, this was one I really couldn't ignore, and I think it's worth talking about those aspects of the game, despite, you know, also acknowledging a year after those allegations of abuse came out at Ubisoft, they did uh, a third-party anonymous survey of staff, and the vast majority of them felt like nothing had changed at that company, so that's still shit. I'm not recommending this game, but I am saying it's doing some impressive stuff accessibility-wise that is worth talking about. Mm -hmm. Well... Certainly don't want to give them any more airtime than uh, absolutely warranted for the accessibility. Ubisoft, terrible company, terrible to its employees. It's been a week of that for me. It's been a week of like, I'm going to talk about this game, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for you, it's always talking about this <laughs> game, but... Yeah, video game, but. That, that, yeah. That's me right there. Uh, Conrad, you played anything else this week? Uh, yeah, real brief. I'm just gonna mention that I played a very short horror game called The Shopping List. This is, uh, it's on itch. You have recently moved to a new town, and you need to pick up a few items on your way home to your new apartment so that, you know you have just the basics which can be a pretty relatable scenario it's a first person game it's it's a horror thing it it was it was fine you know for for what it is uh it has a a PlayStation 1 type of aesthetic that it's going for it has some truly creepy looking face textures on models that are all like stretched out balloon faces it's uh it's definitely a, hitting that target of when games were 3d and real ugly and that that's not a criticism it's just it, what it is i actually think aesthetically it works really well for what it's it's trying to do but there's not a lot to say about it the games can be played through in about 20 minutes it's super linear it's fine it's fine for a thing to kill 20 minutes on pay what you want it's fine worth checking out the shopping list it's not thrilling it's not it's it's kind of slow pace and i feel like they're trying to build dread your mileage will vary as to how effective you think that is but at least it's over quickly if if you feel it's dragging and uh it's not a bad little story so yeah the shopping list there you go it's on itch yeah you played anything else steph i had an urge to play witcher 3 again not from the beginning i just picked it up from wherever i was last time 
I always tell myself I'm going to get to Blood and Wine, and I never do, and I never have. So I think The Witcher 3 is a game that I'm just always forever going to have playing in the background of my life. It's as good as usual. Solid game. Hit things with a sword. And uh, that's that. Yeah. That's it for me. (laughs) Um... I can very quickly rattle through a couple of other things. I played the epilogue that was made available for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. It's like an hour long. It's, what if Nintendo wanted to tell, like, a zombie horror (laughs) story, but were afraid of scaring children, so anyone who's infected by the zombie virus, i.e. eats a magic mochi, their eyes glow purple and they ominously do a chicken dance as they approach menacingly at you. What? Yes. This is amazing. It's kind of amazing. It's stupid in all the right ways, because it's entire. look, it's an hour long, and it's entirely playing every, like, beat-for-beat moment of a zombie horror film. It's the one person's acting a little strange and we don't know what's up, but they're probably just ill, you know, someone's gonna look after them. It's the, oh no, it's starting to spread, why is everyone being a bit weird? Oh no, someone got separated from the group and now they're turning into one of the ominous chicken-walking people. Um, you can't take it seriously, but it is paced and framed very seriously. Yeah. Um, uh, my only real thought about that is the last couple of years, Pokemon games, when they've added new mythical Pokemon post-release, have done so as just a download code, where it's just you put the code in and you get the new Pokemon. That kind of sucks. I'm glad that, you know, even if it's like less than an hour long, I'm glad there was a little story that led up to this new Pokemon, so this new Pokemon felt like the big deal that they want it to feel like. I think yeah. that is a better approach for like, this is the final Pokemon we are adding to this generation. It's not just, here's a code, there it is, go. It's like, no, there was a little narrative that sort of gave it some weight. And other than that, I've been replaying uh, Like a Dragon Gaiden, the man who erased his name on stream, because the English language uh, voiceover patch for that came out. And the first time I played through that game... I completely skipped over a minigame that on stream I spent six hours getting obsessed with. It's called Pocket Circuit, and it's basically high-stakes scale electrics. I've lost a lot of time to Pocket Circuit in the past. In past Yakuza's, every time I see Pocket Circuit... Because the problem is, first two or three Pocket Circuit maps are just hold down button and you win. And as such, a couple of times I've come across the minigame, I've done the, the, you know, the, the mandatory one or two, and gone... I don't see any like anything interesting here, and I walk away. And this was the time I stuck with it long enough where it's like, oh, I have to get real specific about my build oh, if I want to awesome. keep going. And it finally got its hooks in me, and I'm so glad, because I never... It, it's not even that I didn't get the appeal of Pocket Circuit, it just didn't sell me on being something that I should spend my time with. It takes a little minute, yeah. Like, it takes a little minute. I was the same, like, I ignored it for a while, and then... Yeah really got because you just start thinking about it like because there's parts everywhere and you just start thinking about like building the perfect pocket car the the new one i i don't again i never played enough of the other ones to know if this is the case this one has a rival system when you reach a certain point you can go starting to find rivals out in the world to challenge to battles 
I'm like, it just have little one-on-one races with. Yeah. But yeah, I got very deep into the, like, I'm going to sit for like five minutes and analyse the track before I even attempt it, going, okay, there's a little grass patch there, how much elevation does it have, what kind of battery am I using, is it enough uh, laps for me to use the, uh, the, 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 the high-speed short duration one? I got very into it, and I, I 100%ed that minigame over like six hours. Oh, wow. I got very into Pocket Circuit, so if if you're like me and have played Jacuzzi and have just like kind of glossed over Pocket Circuit, give it give it a chance. It's pretty good. It's better than I thought. Lovely stuff. Yeah, is that everything we've played? I think so. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, the deck. Well, in that case, we got a we got a couple of newsy bits this week. Um, in one that you know uh, we can get through pretty quickly. Um. In the UK, we have basically one gaming retail store chain. It's called Game. We used to have others. Game ate them up and consumed them, and now it's just Game. Yeah. But for the longest time, you know, Game was where you went to trade in your video games or go buy pre-owned video games. I used to like GameStation. So did I, and then that it, was the one I'd go. Then to. it stopped existing because Game bought it. And got yeah, rid of it. retreated into some blockbusters, which was not the safe haven they well, thought it was. Well, I mean, speaking be. of retreating inside other stores, we'll get to that in a second. Right, but, right. Uh, game these days is like ninety percent like toys and board games and not video games. Yeah, I get my Insecticons from there sometimes. Yeah, so Game have confirmed that they're ending pre-owned game sales and video game trade-ins. Christ. Which I think the only option that leaves on the high street now is CEX. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is why they're doing this. Because, like, I'd assumed for the longest time, and I think I'd heard before, that, like, it's one of the more profitable bits of the business for them. But the reason they're phasing it out is, I didn't know this, more and more often there aren't standalone game stores anymore. Game now mostly exists inside Sports Direct stores. What? Right? I see them in shopping malls, but like at least up here, I see them in, in shopping malls a fair bit. Like, But Sports Direct? Apparently a growing number of them uh, now exist within Sports Direct stores um, bec- because they're owned by the same parent company. And the, the <sighs> problem is, is A, they don't want to have to dedicate you know, um, space in the back for, you know, uh, pre-owned game cataloging in the back of the Sports Direct. But the other problem is they have to have their own separate till system, apparently, just for game purchases, because that has the large back catalogue of all the past games that they can accept for trade-in and the trade-in prices and whatnot. And it seems like they want to be able to just have one till system for the Sports Direct sales and the game sales. And not have to have them be two separate till systems. So they're going to gut the most profitable part of the business out of laziness. Yeah. I almost respect that commitment to being bung fucking idle. It's a filing cabinet at this point. It's a filing cabinet and one extra till. It's like, oh, you want to do a trade-in? Go to the trade-in till. Yeah. I love it. But that is one additional member of staff that's got to stand on the trade-in till and therefore no trade-ins. Not necessarily. I have, look, I have worked in some... Retail establishments in my life, <laughs> and let me tell you, there is absolutely nothing on God's green earth that would prevent a company from just staffing one person to handle both of those tasks. They'd just, oh, I mean, let me take yeah. you over to the other till where we do the trade-ins. That's all it would be. 
That's all they need to do. It's a fucking filing cabinet and keeping a, another computer system running throughout the day. Amazing. Yeah. I love it. So, yeah, good for long-term thinking, I suppose. But they're still going to sell Transformers, right? I mean, who who knows at this point? Yeah. Is there room in the Sports Direct for a Transformer? <laughs> who knows? The thing is, is I... I spent many, many years defending used games. I kind of just eventually drifted over to digital for almost all my media. I do for portable games. I'll, I'll get some secondhand stuff. But I always go to CEX for that anyway. I don't even think of game as a, a place for used games anymore. Uh, if I think I want to get some secondhand stuff, I go to CEX. Um, I go to games specifically for like toys and nonsense. Yeah. Um, and very rarely at that. And I guess increasingly so if they're going to move into Sports Direct. Well, I guess sometimes I'm in Sports Directs for like when I need um, like uh, boxing boots and stuff for training and that. I mean, I guess I get it from a severe cost-cutting measure, but Mm. it's a weird pairing to have game inside a Sports Direct to me. It depends on how big esports gets. Mm, Whether that association of video games as being a sporting thing... If that can take hold in the culture, then sure, it makes complete sense. But... Then again, if they're de-emphasizing the gaming part and focusing on the like the giant Pokemon plushies, right? Like the esport thing becomes even more tenuous a link. So yeah. strange. Yeah. Other than that, we've got some video game companies fighting with each other over their logos happening at the moment. Brilliant. So. Rockstar Games. Their logo is a letter R in an orange, sort of slightly rounded square with a little star next to it. Yep, I designed it. Yeah. Oh, no, good work. Good work. Very thank recognizable. You, thank you. Simple, but 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 distinct. Yeah. Um, back in April of last year, Remedy revealed a new logo for their company, which is a letter R with the word Remedy under it in black and white. And great work on that, Laura. Oh, thank you. I I think it's pretty good work. You know, it's a stylized R that's a little glitchy. It's got the name of the studio under it. It's black and white, different colour palette to your work on the Rockstar Superb. Absolutely different. I think we've made very visually distinct logos from each other. I don't think anyone would confuse your work for mine. Absolutely not. No one's going to look at my Remedy logo that says Remedy under it and think that it's your Rockstar logo that has a star in it. Whenever I think anyone's copying me, I send threatening letters. And I didn't send you a threatening letter over that situation. Oh, but maybe the companies we did this work for, definitely did this work for, might have sent some threatening letters to each other. Cause, yeah, this is concerning. Yeah. Take-Two Interactive has entered a trademark dispute with Remedy, saying that their logo looks too similar to the Rockstar logo, because both of them are in a square and both of them have a letter R. Totally. Yeah. It's a stylized one, but uh, Take-Two suggests there exists a likelihood of confusion on the part of the public. I know I'll look at the one that says Remedy and go, that's Rockstar right there. Well, yeah, because it says Remedy right underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. I would think that that's a pretty good defense for people will confuse this for Rockstar. It literally says Remedy on it. This feels like something that is going to end with Remedy saying, ah, fuck it, and just changing it. Probably, but it, it also, it's worth noting that Rockstar has different logos for all of its studios. Yeah. However... They're all consistently that R and star with no variance. So there's no reason to think that someone would confuse Rockstar with Remedy 
because Rockstar hasn't stylized their logo in any alternative fashion than that mm. across all yeah. their shit. Like, it, it feels like such a weak argument. But I agree with Steph. I think this is going to be one of those things where Remedy just says, ah, fuck it, because it's not worth this battle. It's Like, stupid. you know, companies change logos all the time. It's not the most recognizable logo anyway. When I'm trying to, like, think of it off the top of my head, uh, I recognize the Remedy name. Yeah. But the the logo, I don't think, is so iconic or, or important or interesting. I don't remember what Remedy's old logo looked like prior to this one. Neither do I. But I know I would look at this one and go, that's Remedy. It says Remedy on the logo. I remember Pandemic still. And they shut down in, like, the early, mid-2010s, something like that. With the yellow, the yellow and black and the gas mask. They made the Saboteur. The Saboteur. Yeah, it was yeah. a great little game at the time. Yeah. People hated me for saying I liked it because it was shortly after I said I hated Assassin's Creed 2. <laughs> yes, because you can't have different you can't have different opinions on different games. That's one that I uh-huh. every couple of years I think, gosh, should I go back and, and like actually finish playing the Saboteur? Because I only put in a handful of hours and it was neat. Although now I'm not sure I, I want to. I don't think I'd stick with it. I think I'd find that it, mechanically it hadn't aged too well. But for its time, I really liked it. Hmm. I liked the black and white sort of style yep. it had. And the the writing was, was pretty decent. Like The characters were fun. I liked the little bit. I always uh, loved the bit with the villain at the end where just before he dies, he just realizes that he's like evil and going to go to hell. And he's really scared of it. And uh, that was just a nice sort of memorable final scene for a villain. Hmm. I didn't like the racing bit, I don't think. There was a racing car bit. But yeah, the Saboteur was, was for its time, good. I remember it had pre-order DLC where there was uh, burlesque dancers where they got their tits out because mm. it was that embarrassing <laughs> period of the game industry, that sort of 360 generation where developers had just realised they could get away with making quote-unquote mature games. Right. And mm. years later, never really saw what his point was at the time, years later I agree with Jonathan now and his staunch refusal to call M-rated games mature. Yeah, yeah. that was a, the correct response at the time. It was just like throw tits in because we can the base of operations was in the back of a bordello in the saboteur <laughs> yes yeah I, I recall right and like i understand like tits i understand how they've narratively justified it but pre-ordering to get a topless <laughs> dance is pretty amazing i'm i'm pretty uh... sure you don't get tits in the base game so it's not like they needed them um but that's what it was like back then like there were so many unnecessary sex scenes and I think it's quite telling that you don't see so many now because we've kind of calmed down on it, which is good. Well, Kratos isn't doing them anymore. Well, no, they they very deliberately moved away from that, from all that, <clears throat> <clears throat> like that. Yeah. <clears throat> he, he, he used to go. <clears throat> he, he did used to go that. <clears throat> they should have had one where you do it as um, Odin, though, because he fucked. <laughs> uh, uh. Probably. He did a horse, didn't he? Probably. 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 They were always turning into horses and fucking each other back then. So there was a controversy about Baldur's Gate 3. If it's good enough for Odin, it's good enough for me, is what I say. Yeah. What were we talking about? I, I, logos. I'm on it. I'm going to be honest. I, uh, logos. logos. I lost track for a bit there. <laughs> 
we, we, got, we got a couple of other stories quickly. Uh, it wouldn't be a Pogquisition episode at this point without more news of more layoffs at more studios, because of course, oh, it's of the course layoff, it is. The layoff segment it's of that the show. Bit. It's everyone's <laughs> favourite segment. Um, Laura's layoff. No, don't put these on me. <laughs> I am not responsible. It's I'm... Laura's layoff, lay away, a cucaracha. <laughs> okay. Hooray. Oh, so... Uh, there's a studio called Lost Boys Interactive that are owned by Gearbox. Um, they made the Tiny Tina spin-off games for Borderlands. The sort of uh, yeah. this one's a this one's a D and D, but it's a video game and it's got Tiny Tina talking at you. They were a 400 person studio, and while it is not officially known how many people were let go, I have seen reported uh, allegedly around 300 people out of that 400 person staff. It seems to be pretty brutal. Once again, this is under Embracer, so this is more Embracer layoffs. Yeah. Producer at the studio said, a, uh, it seems a sizable portion of Lost Boys Interactive was laid off today, including myself. He said that the layoffs had affected all disciplines at all levels. A spokesperson from the company did confirm that these layoffs happened, and it's the exactly... You, you can imagine what this statement is. Lost Boys Interactive made the difficult decision to restructure our studio to ensure we can succeed in spite of headwinds facing the industry right now. Unfortunately, this does mean that we will separate from some of our team members and we're working closely with those affected. We know this is a hard time for this talented and experienced group of people and we'll provide support and assistance through this transition to those leaving. You know what the headwinds are? The headwinds are coming off of a unrealistic period of temporary growth due to a global catastrophe. Yeah. And thinking it was going to be like this forever. You fucking idiots. Additionally, I do want to highlight one bit of wording that I said in there that I kind of glossed over. The one that annoyed me was, um, unfortunately this means we will separate from some of our team members. <laughs> oh my That's, god. I, I know I kind of glossed on. over it in the banal voice, but yeah, we will separate we will separate from some of our team members. That is the most distancing fucking language I can imagine. Outside of them literally saying that they will distance themselves from their, their employees. Fucking hell. Yeah. Okay, I don't know if it's more pathetic when somebody says... Oh, it was mutual when they break up. <laughs> or if when someone who fires someone says, oh, it was mutual when they fire them. Mm. I'm not sure which is sadder and more pathetic. I'm just waiting for a company to say it's not you, it's me. Right? I mean, Unfortunately. they're not using those words, but they're basically saying it. And I mean, mm. let's face it, it isn't the employees it is them it is them yes it is them yeah. that would be more honest than a lot of what they say the difficult decision it's an indulgence as i always say it's not a difficult decision it is them indulging in laying off other people rather than like you know leadership taking the cut also that they can keep that fucking the great lie going the great mm-hmm. perpetual growth myth yep yeah, so that's that's fun. Gotta love that. Except you don't. You don't have to love that. It's bad. We, we've got one last story, and I've tried to end on something a little a little less grim. Um, are either of you aware that last week there was very briefly a story doing the rounds of Game Shark, 
the people who used to make cheating devices for video games might have... The, the headline was GameShark have announced the release date of the Switch 2. Did either of you catch this Wait, while it was floating around? I think I, I picked up a snippet, but it's one of them ones where like the ADHD kind of reflected it. Yeah, so I'll I'll give you like the the version of this that first did the rounds. Game Shark don't really exist anymore. They haven't existed for a while, but Game Shark has rebranded as AI Shark and oh. um, uh. right and paired up with some audio company and at CEX they put out a press release going, "Yeah, we're going to release a new AI powered Game Shark successor." Um, blah blah blah. Here's a bunch of buzzwords, etc. And no one would have paid any attention to this press release. No one would have given AI Shark, the new AI version of Game Shark, any fucking news coverage, if not for one sentence in their press release. The official launch is planned to coincide with the Nintendo Switch 2 in September of 2024. Unsurprisingly, a bunch of people picked up on that sentence and went, "Hey." Does Game Shark know something they then they're not supposed to here? Something that hasn't been said, and the internet kind of fucking lost its mind for a minute. Now, of course not. Nintendo didn't like Game Shark back in the day. I don't think they're going to Game Shark now that they're AI Shark and going. Yeah, you know, let's let's tell you our unannounced consoles release release date. You know, just for shits and giggles. I mean, look how long it took them to forgive Hollywood for Mar like. Mario yeah. in 93, like, no, they're not going to be best buds with Game Shark now. Yeah, and it's like, you know, theoretically, maybe they heard something off the grapevine they weren't meant to have heard, and for some reason included it in a press release. But the, the far more obvious answer is, they threw this sentence in knowing that it was just a random fucking guess on their part, because they knew it would get people to, exactly as I've done here, tell people, hey, Game Shark's back for AI now. They did after a couple of hours go. Oh, oh yeah, that was uh, that was just a that was just a prediction on our part. We don't know when it's coming, but uh, we 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 uh, we we said it sincere. It, we meant it when we said it, but it was just a guess. We it's not that we knew it or anything. Uh, sorry about any confusion. We definitely didn't mean to create. So. Oh. Yeah, Game Shark surprisingly probably doesn't know when the Switch 2's coming out, but it's not gonna stop them going, please pay attention to our AI grift we're working on. Well then. Yeah. Well then. Is that it? Is that the... That's, that's it! Is that that's, we wrapped up? That's it, we done it. Well we done, then. We done did it. Laura. Me? Oh, for crying out loud, Laura. Oh. Laura, Laura. Oh, sorry. Apologies. You've done stuff, haven't you? I mean, I have done stuff. You've done stuff. That that, and, that and... much is undeniable. Well, I mean, now that the cat's out of the bag, and may God have mercy on your soul. Why don't you tell folks about it? Oh, you can find everything I do on the internet at Laura K Buzz pretty much everywhere. Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, TikTok, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Patreon. That's the one that pays the bills. Uh, as little as a dollar a month over there really, really helps. Um... You can find a couple of big, lengthy accessibility videos uh, up on youtube.com slash Buzz. probably by the time this goes up. Um, my coverage of both uh, The Last of Us Part 2 Remastered and uh, Prince of Persia, The, the, uh, the Lost Crown. Um, 
those are I am proud of those videos, despite the fact that both of them start with caveats. But I, I you know, it's uh, it's been it's been an interesting week of trying to thread the needle of things that are worth uh, that that deserve discussion from an accessibility standpoint. So go give those videos a watch. Um, there is also one I did last week that I want to shout out, where I did a like thirty five minute uh, interview chat with a, a accessibility creator called Arevia, uh, talking um, about PTSD and video game accessibility. It was a really lovely conversation. I hope people check it out. Um, I've started doing videos as well that are sort of little news recaps for accessibility stories that I don't have time to de dedicate full episodes of accessibility to. Uh, the first one of those went up last week and went through a whole little handful of stories that wouldn't have made a full episode but were worth talking about. Go check that out. I've been putting out a bunch of stuff on YouTube recently. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, what about you, Conrad? Where are you on the internet? Oh, you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Instagram and Blue Sky. You can hang out with me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash thatconradzimmerman. You can hear me on Let's Talk About Snacks, where I talk about snacks with Lauren Morgan and my wife Linda. Uh, you could listen to Red Planet, which is a show that I produce that uh, is all about how we make the world a better place. And you can buy anti-capitalist propaganda and Jimquisition merchandise at mercenarycreative.com. Uh, everything, I think, is linked on my link tree at linktree.ee slash Conrad Zimmerman. And everything that I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? Why it's Stephanie Sterling. That's right. Patreon.com slash Jimquisition. Uh, that is that. Um, no wrestling dates coming up at the moment. Um... I will have stuff, uh, notably for Tree Grit. I'll definitely be back for the next Leeds one. Um, but nothing uh, to publicly announce yet. Um, that's about that. Um, I am hoping to try and get back into streaming soon. Sorry, I am at... I've, I've been having a real burnout phase and I'm trying to claw my way out of it um, and hopefully do more stuff. But thank you all for your support, um, as always, and for listening and all of that. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.